to get the context here in Zechariah 2, I think we need to remember uh, the, the background that Judah had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and then God had raised up Cyrus to uh, allow them to, to return if they wanted, but the majority of them unfortunately preferred the soft life of, of Babylon, and they didn't go back. And those of them who did go back didn't have a particularly good time. They didn't, it seems, uh, fulfill the, all the prophecies about the restoration that the restoration prophets were, were full of. They ran into, a whole, uh, ran into a whole load of opposition from the people, that, the local people that were living there in, in the land. And then the work sort of stops. But we read in Ezra 6 verse 14 that the word got going again, it prospered is the word that's used, by the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. So then, as I understand it, Zechariah prophesied to those rather depressed few Jews who had returned and encouraged them to get on with the work, etc., and they did so against all odds, and they succeeded. So then, the people who heard this prophecy that we are now reading were motivated by it to get up and actually do something. So you can see what I, I'm going to go with this, to say, well, you know, we also are in a situation where it seems that doing God's work is very, very difficult. And there's so many obstacles or satans or adversaries to us in, in various ways. And at times it really doesn't seem that the great promises which there are of, of God dramatically opening things up for us, fulfilling his promises to us, it just seems that it's not happening. So then, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were feeling the same and they got up and prospered actually in their work as a result of believing what Zechariah had to say. So then, Zechariah 2, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a man with a measuring line in his hand. And he says, verse 2, that the, the man answers him, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the, the length thereof. Now, this man, from the context, is quite clearly an angel, and that's confirmed if you look at Ezekiel 40, where Ezekiel also sees a man who appears to be, uh, well, who's not simply a man, but is quite clearly an angel. Uh, he, he sees this, this man measuring Jerusalem and giving him, or measuring the temple, and giving him the vision. He sees a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And this man says to him that he has been sent to Ezekiel to show him the uh, the plan for, for the temple. And then as the prophecy of Ezekiel goes on, or the, the uh, temple prophecy goes on in Ezekiel from 40 to 48, you find this man going around measuring different things in the temple, exact measurements, etc., and Ezekiel has to take a note of that and share it with the house of Israel. And the key passage is in chapter 43, where Ezekiel is told that if, if the house of Israel are obedient, then all this is going to come true. But I read that prophecy of the temple as a conditional prophecy, as God saying, this is what I have got planned. You exiles... You can go back to the land, and this is the temple that you can build. And when he, he says this is the, the height of it, and the length of this this porch, etc., this room, and that hall, and, and the altars, etc., this is all God saying, this is what you shall do. Not in the sense of 
predictive prophecy, but God saying, this is what I'm telling you to do. This is what you shall do. That is a commandment. So I see all that that we read there from Ezekiel 40 to 48 as commandment rather than prophecy. And that's why I think that when the, the foundation of the temple was laid in Ezra's time, some people cried for joy and other people cried for other reasons. And I think the crying for other reasons was because the more spiritually minded perceived that the great temple that Ezekiel had said shall be built, or should be built, had in fact not been built. That yes, they did rebuild some kind of temple and, and they did reinstitute a few things, but this was clearly not the glorious restoration of, of the temple that Ezekiel had spoken of. So then, Zechariah, I think, sees something similar, although he's not given all the details that Ezekiel is. This angel measures Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 2, the breadth and, and the length. And notice it's as if this already exists. In the potential of God, it did all exist. And I think the lesson for us is that God maybe has prepared in very great detail huge potentials for you and I, things that we could achieve, maybe in our own characters, maybe in ministry to other people. He has prepared in huge detail so much for us that is potentially possible, but we may not actually fulfill it. It's like when you read through Ezekiel 40 to 48, you think, well, why has God bothered preserving this? Why did God go into such detail? I mean, you know, talking about uh, all sorts of eventualities like the, the kind of garments the priest must wear so that it doesn't make them sweat and things like that. Why did God go into such amazing detail? And why has it been recorded all these years for us to read now? Well, I, I think one one answer to that is that the potential that is possible it is absolutely detailed and intricate in how God has worked it out. And in that lies the tragedy of human beings not responding as they should do. It's as if God has prepared amazing potentials for you and I. And yet, if we don't go forward and fulfill them, it's all wasted. And it is that wastage which I think is so tragic. Now, verse 3, the angel that talked with me, and that shows that the man who's talking, I, I think, is an angel, went forth. This angel goes forth. It doesn't say where from. And I'm tempted to uh, interpret this in the light of, of Daniel 10, verses 12 and 13, where you remember Daniel was praying for three weeks about, uh, I think, the, the restoration of of uh, Judah from Babylon and the the temple and, and, and Jerusalem, etc. And he's praying for three weeks. And then after three weeks, an angel comes to him and says, from the first day that you prayed, Daniel, your prayer was heard. And I am come. I am come. I've come forth because of your words. But he says, unfortunately, the prince of Persia sort of delayed me 21 days, which is three weeks. So he's saying to Daniel, the first day you prayed, it was heard and answered, and I was sent forth to answer it. But it took me three, three weeks to kind of uh, sort out the answer with, with the king of Persia. So then, the angel was sent forth. 
because of Daniel's prayer. Not only Daniel's prayer, I'm sure the prayer of, of many people. So this is an insight, I think, into the court of heaven, where you, uh, I suppose the clearest example of it is in First Kings 22, where you've got God in heaven with the angels on the right hand and on the left hand, and God says, Ahab's got to die at Ramoth Gilead. Now, how are you going to do it? And the angels each come up with a different idea, and one angel says, well, I'll make his prophets lie to him. And God says, right, that's it. You're the man, as it were. Uh, that's the idea that I'm happy to go with. Right. And he, the, the angel goes out from God's presence, from the, the throne room, as it were, in heaven. He goes out and does it. And I think the same happened with the restoration of Judah from Babylon, this amazing decree that, that Cyrus made, that because of the prayers of the faithful, God sent out an angel to, as it were, bring about on a sort of mechanical, on a human level, the fulfillment of their prayers. That's an amazing thing, that we here on this earth, that our words can lead to an angel going out. In Daniel 10, the angel says that he was delayed 21 days with the prince of Persia, but Michael, another angel, came to help him. And there's something similar going on here, I think, in chapter 2, verse 3 of Zechariah, that this angel went forth, and another angel met him. And that angel appears to be more senior, because he says to the other angel, Run, speak to this young man, that's Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Now, I think that gives us an insight into the, the court of heaven, as it were. It gives us an insight into the relationship between angels, that there is some kind of hierarchy. Now, Luke 20, 35 and 36, we shall be made like unto the angels. So in one sense, I think that we are going to take over their role. And the sort of structure which there is in heaven will then be, as it were, replicated amongst us. Now, Jesus gives a few hints of this when he says that one will be over, you know, ten cities, another over five, two, etc. And Paul, I think, says the same in saying that one star in the kingdom will differ from another in glory. So there will be, I think, some sort of loving hierarchy and certainly a loving cooperation between us in that day as we do God's work. And, of course, the kingdom life should begin now. And I think how we will relate to each other in the kingdom is, of course, how we should be relating to each other now, working together with a common aim for God's people, as the angels were here, um, relating to each other with, with gentleness, with with love, with, with, with cooperation and support. So, verse 4. The message is that Jerusalem will yet be inhabited as towns without walls. And the reason why they wouldn't need walls is because, verse 5, I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. And yet, you remember the book of Nehemiah, there's a huge emphasis about the need to build walls, physical walls, around Jerusalem. I don't doubt that Nehemiah did that in faith, and, and God blessed him. But I do think that he, by doing that, he was sort of precluding the fulfillment of these temple prophecies, that 
the restored Jerusalem would not have walls. Now, we've looked at Ezekiel 40 to 48 and said that these were, as it were, the blueprints that were given to the, the exiles in, Judah, in, in captivity, the Judean exiles in, the, in Babylon. These were the, the plans, the building plans, for the temple that they were to build. But there's a lead-up to that. And the lead-up to that prophecy is uh, chapter 37 to 39. In 37, you've got this regathering of, of Israel, the restoration from their captivity. And in chapter 38, you have a situation where they would be dwelling in the land without walls, without bars, and without gates. And yet you read in the Nehemiah record of exactly those three things, walls, bars, and gates being set up by Nehemiah. Now, as I say, I'm not saying that that was done without faith, but I think that it was a lower level of response. They knew these prophecies. Ezekiel had been a prophet amongst the, the captives by the river of Kibar. They had heard the words of Zechariah, but all the same, they wanted these physical walls. And so I suggest that all these restoration prophecies, which speak of what could have been at the time of the restoration, were maybe given another kind of fulfillment, or maybe a more spiritual fulfillment, or maybe their literal fulfillment has been delayed. It could have been at the time of the restoration, but it's now been delayed until the actual second coming of Messiah. Whatever, I think the, the lesson that we should be taking away is that by our faithlessness, we preclude, we stop happening a lot of the wonderful potentials that God has planned. And, you know, we may think, well, who am I? Who am I? I'm just some little guy. I'm so weak, I'm so small. And I mean, that is, that is so. But God has all the same prepared huge things for us to do. I mean, we, we may think, ah, you know, I, I can't preach to anybody. I, nobody's interested. I don't seem to have that gift. Maybe that's for other people. But how do you know? And how do I know? My neighbor, the guy that lives upstairs in this block, the woman who lives downstairs, the old guy who lives opposite the la opposite from our apartment on, on the same, uh, same landing, how do I know? And how do you know? Those people may be all prepared by God to respond to the gospel. But if we're not going to take it to them, they never will know. And, you know, there could be all manner of amazing potentials that have been prepared in that person's life, in my life, in your life, and yet we don't want to see that. Because we kid ourselves that, no, it, it can't be true for me. Maybe it was for, for the exiles, but not for me. But it seems to me that this is almost the tragedy of God, that almost God is a, a tragic figure because he has prepared so much. His enthusiasm is so great for us. And yet we, we prefer not to see that. And why do we prefer not to see it? Because it demands so much of us. If he is so actively working 24-7 with his angels to prepare us the, these great potentials, we need to respond. And one of the reasons that Zechariah gives as to why the Jews should respond is, is in verse 8. 
that whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, that is how sensitive God is. So why does he say this? It's a wonderful idea, but why does he come out with it in this context? It's because there they were, a lot of them sitting in Babylon, thinking, no, I don't want to leave the soft life and go back there to that place in Judah. Many of them, of course, had never been there. They'd been born in Babylon uh, and build this ruined temple. No, I might give some money to it, but I'm not going to do it myself. Why should I mess up my life, the houses that, that I've built for myself, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And likewise for those who did return. It seems to me that it was only the very poorest of the Jews who did return for the most part, and they were seeking just some kind of better life rather than getting in the spirit of all these wonderful prophecies. And Zechariah encourages them not to be like that. You know, he says, verse 6, Ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, from Babylon. Why? Because, verse 8, he that touches you touches the apple of God's eye. In other words, God is so sensitive to you, he's so sensitive, don't worry. There's nothing that can really damage you. Because you are like the apple of God's eye. Now, we find this very difficult to believe because it appears that God is some sort of silent. You know, it appears that God, as it were, has left it all running on clockwork and the books are being written and when Jesus comes back, the books will be opened and the whole thing will be looked at and considered. But not so. That is not right. That is a, a false doctrine. Uh, God is actively involved in human life right now and feels for us. He feels for us more than we can ever know. Because he who touches us touches the apple of his eye. We are the apple of his eye. And in the Psalms, David actually asks God to preserve him, David, as the apple of his eye. Now, when you look into someone else's eye, if you look into the apple of their eye, right into their iris, you will see a very, very small reflection of yourself. And it's a beautiful figure, but that is us to God that we are a tiny reflection of him, but we are there. And anyone who touches us, touches him. So then, with that encouragement, he, he says in, in verse 6, Come forth and flee from the land of the north. Verse 7, Deliver yourself, Isaiah. Now, as I've said in, in I think, another talk uh, last week, the ending of the book of Esther always strikes me as very sad. That there the Jews were in Babylon, and the way it all finishes up, they were popular, everybody liked them, they were wealthy. Archaeologists have found evidence that the Jews were the bankers there in Babylon, that uh, Nehemiah even was, was the, uh, the king's cupbearer, that there in, in Babylon, in Persia, they were really quite wealthy they were they didn't stay very long sitting by the rivers of babylon hanging their harps upon the willows and, and weeping for zion i'm afraid that didn't last for very long at all the vast majority of them got on with life and did very well thank you very much and yet they're told here flee out of that deliver yourself from that life and this language of fleeing of delivering yourself it's very strong language now it's so strong because if they didn't, 
then spiritually they would perish. And of course it's the same message that comes over to us to deliver ourselves from Babylon. Come out from her, my people. This is picking up all these prophecies uh, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and here in Zechariah, to leave Babylon and to go back to Judah and build up God's house. This is the basis of a lot of New Testament teaching about committing ourselves to the hope of the kingdom. I'll give you just two examples. Second Corinthians 6 verse 17, we're told that we should come out of this world, and quite clearly Paul is quoting there from uh, the, the Jeremiah passages about coming out from Babylon. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. Come out from among them, and be separated from them. This is the language of come out from Babylon, and be separate from her. Verse 7, deliver yourself, O Zion. That, oddly enough, is quoted from the Septuagint, uh, deliver yourself by Peter in Acts 2, Acts 2 verse 40 where he appeals to people to be baptized and he says deliver yourselves from this generation so quite clearly the call to the Jews in Babylon to quit that soft life, to quit that busy life of, of business etc and to get out on the road and go back to that ruined land and to put the needs of God's people first, to go out there and fulfill the prophecies that have been given. That's the basic call to us in this world, to quit the things of this world. Uh, of course, I don't mean to, to become a hermit, go live in a monastery, uh, but, but all the same, in a spiritual sense, to quit the things of this world and give ourselves to the things of God's people, his house, his temple, which we know is the community of believers. Now, there's another passage which I'm, I'm sure that Paul had in mind when he says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. And it's in Jeremiah 51, verse 6. And it's one of a number of passages in Jeremiah that talk about the need to leave Babylon. Jeremiah 51, verse 6. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Very similar to what we've just read in Zechariah 2. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. Because this is the time of the Lord's judgment. He's going to render her a recompense. Now that happened in the time of Daniel. That the kingdom of Babylon fell and it was taken over by Persia. So yes, Babylon suffered. And the, the, the Medes and uh, Darius the Mede took the kingdom, etc. And the Medo-Persian dynasty was established. But the Jews who did not leave Babylon, as they had been told to, did not actually suffer. There's no evidence that they suffered. The evidence is quite the other way, that actually the, uh, the Medes and the Persians were quite well disposed towards them. You've got evidence of that within the book of Daniel, and you also have it, of course, in Nehemiah being the cupbearer to the king after that had happened. So then... Actually, that didn't happen in, in a physical sense when they're told, get out of Babylon so that you don't suffer in her judgment. Well, her judgment came uh, at the hand of, of, of the Medes, of Darius, but it seems that the Jews didn't actually suffer. 
physically. So what are we to make of all these prophecies about get out of Babylon so that you're not consumed in her iniquity? Well, I think we have no option but to take this in a more spiritual sense. God is saying for the good, the spiritual good of the Jews in Babylon, get out and go to the land, to, to Judah, and rebuild the temple and just get out of that place because spiritually it's going to kill you. Now, as I say, those passages are quoted in Revelation specifically, Revelation 18, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you be consumed in her judgment. And it may not be so sort of literalistic as to mean get out of this world or else you're going to get punished and caught up in the judgment that's coming upon this world. I think it must be taken more spiritually. Separate yourself from the spirit of this age quite radically, just as radically as the people of Judah had to leave Babylon physically and go to this land of, of Judah, which many of them have never seen, and rebuild this, this ruined building called the temple. That's the call to quit the things of this world and to devote ourselves to the things of God. Now, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. Zion is nearly always used in the Old Testament to talk specifically about the temple, or the Mount Zion. And yet here, God's people are called Zion. And Zion, the temple, the people, is dwelling with the daughter of Babylon. They were being told to, to get out of Babylon because they are Zion. They were the temple. And God had said that he was going to rebuild that temple. Wonderful prophecy in Ezekiel about how glorious it was going to be. He was going to go and live in that in that temple. And in fact, Zechariah continues uh, and says the same thing. He says, verse 10, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you says the Lord, just like at the end of Ezekiel it says, in the name of that city shall be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. But they were then Zion. They were the temple. And they were to go back to the physical temple and rebuild it. But they didn't want to see that. And it's of course the same with us, that we potentially are God's house. Well, we are God's house, but we've got to live like we are God's house. All these wonderful things that, that are written about the, the believers, about the status of the believers, that we are in Christ, we're in heavenly places in Christ, that we are sanctified, etc. We have to go out and live what we are by status. Now, if they had done this at that time, if they had realized that they were Zion, that they were God's temple, so let's get out of Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and build Zion, because we are Zion, and God will come and dwell in the midst of us. If, that, if they'd done that, then I think verse 11 would have come true. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, shall choose Jerusalem again, etc. But many nations were not joined to the Lord 
in the day when that let's say no more than than 40,000 I would say at the most um, Jews returned from Babylon to to live in in the land in fact the very opposite happened when you read Ezra and Nehemiah you find that the the few Jews that did go back they intermarried they started their kids started speaking in the the local languages Um, they started trading with the the Gentile nations on the Sabbath they were caught up with really being assimilated into those surrounding nations so this intention that the, the witness of the people of Judah returning, that they would return with, with joy, proclaiming the great things that God had done for Zion and was going to do for Zion, uh, and that this would attract the Gentile world, this didn't happen. Now, okay, the fulfillment of it may be rescheduled, but my point in this context is the tragedy of the fact that it didn't happen, that this was possible, that many nations could have been joined to the Lord in that day, but it didn't happen. Now, it's easy to think that, well, okay, even if I fail in doing what I should do, if I do not, for example, witness to this person, well, God will call them anyway. And okay, I should have done my, my part more faithfully, but I didn't, uh, but that's okay. Somehow, you know, God's will is going gonna, is gonna to come true. Well, I know it's somewhat a philosophical point, but I, I don't think so, ultimately. Ultimately, I don't think so. I think that God has delegated his work to us. So those nations that could have been joined to the Lord and could have become his people at the time of the restoration, I mean, those people as individuals, it seems to me, lost their chance of salvation because the people of Judah couldn't be bothered because they preferred the soft life in Babylon. They did not want to go back to the land and those who did were just concerned with building up their little farmsteads and trying to have a nice life and uh, hoping they were going to get some great physical, material blessing from God. That's how I take uh, Haggai's prophecy when he says, well, there's, there's been a drought and you haven't had all the blessings that you were looking for because you have not put God's house and God's people first in your hearts. They don't have priority. All you're thinking about is how, how well you can get on in this new land. And so you're not even going to have that blessing from God. That's how I read Haggai. And so, of course, we ask ourselves, how many people are there in our lives who could be joined to the Lord, but who will not be? Because you and I don't just don't do it. And as I say, I don't see in the Bible any implication that, okay, if we don't do our job, well, God will kind of do it himself. No. Their salvation has been delegated to us. And insofar as we don't do it, it won't happen. And insofar as we do it, it will happen. We've been given talents, and we've been told to go away and trade with them. And that means that we are there with our own initiative. And we're going to make losses and we're going to make gains. But I think probably the greatest temptation is to dig in the earth and leave the talent in the earth and say, Ah, no. Uh, I'm not going to spend it on myself, but I'm also not going to do anything with it because I'm I'm not good enough or I'm, I'm busy with other things or, or whatever. And so what I think comes out of this is that if this is true, what I've suggested, that actually the calling of the other nations to God to be his people will not happen unless we do it, 
I mean, this makes human life certainly worth living, but it, it attaches a tremendous sense of urgency to the way in which we use life. That, you know, every day can just be like another, and we're just busy existing and trying to uh, make our little bit of existence as comfortable for ourselves as we can, with a, 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 as nice a possible uh, dwelling place, apartment, home, etc., car, whatever it might be, holidays, and that that's basically it. I mean, that's how most people live. But God has given you and I so much more. We have in our hands, literally in our hands, in God's word and in our, the understanding we've been given of it by, by his grace, we have in our hands the opportunity to give other people eternal life. And that is something that means that we just can't be passive about that. Not for a single moment. And it's not only a case of preaching. The work of God's temple, of God's house, is in our hands. If we don't do it, it won't happen. And so the whole work of caring for God's people, he has delegated to us. We have been, as, as Paul says, entrusted with the gospel. It's a trust. And God has given this to us. And it's not that we sort of joined a denomination or were raised in some sort of denomination of Christianity and so we sort of accepted it and we, we ran with it and we, well, okay, we sort of keep the show on the road, um, <clears throat> keep the church going uh, because, well, now as we've grown up, it, it sort of falls to us and falls to our generation to sort of play our part, etc., to keep the whole, the whole tradition going. I, I mean, this is a tragic missing of the point. We have been entrusted with other people's welfare in the sense that if we don't do it, it won't happen. Now, please get me right here. I'm not teaching salvation by works. I'm not trying to glorify works at all. Works are nothing to do with salvation. We are saved by grace. <clears throat> but, but I'm talking about the responsibility that we have. So then to bring our thoughts to the Lord Jesus. I know it's very difficult to analyze why and how he achieved what he achieved, but I do wonder if, to some extent, if he had failed, <clears throat> because he had the possibility of failure, if he had failed, I do wonder whether there would have been another way for us, at least not to the, the same extent that there was in him. I think that's why in Hebrews it glorifies in the fact that he has obtained for us such a great salvation, as if there was a quality, and there is a quality, to that salvation that we have, such great salvation, as if, well, there could have been a lesser one, but he achieved the maximum. It would all rather fit in with uh, the situation with David and Goliath, that the wager was, if you kill Goliath, then the Philistines will be Israel's servants, but... If Goliath killed David, then the Israelites would be the Philistine servants. And you can imagine the pressure that was on David. And I think that whole incident is very typical, really, of the death of the Lord Jesus for us. And the, I don't know if he felt stress in the sense that we do, but there certainly would have been a huge sense within him, stress if we want to use that word, uh, relating to the fact that he could have failed, and let's say there would have been huge consequences for our salvation 
the salvation of millions if he had failed. Because, I mean, he, he wasn't a puppet. He, he was living all this out in real time with real feelings. That the temptations that he had meant that he could have turned to the right or to the left. He had real meaningful temptation. And so the fact that, thank God, he never did fail, the fact that he not only never failed, but also fulfilled his potential to the absolute maximum in every aspect of his his human character, personality, development, uh, his work that he did for for the Father in his in, in his final ministry, and particularly in, in his death, that in all this we see our pattern. We see the ultimate potential lived up to. And although we are not Jesus, and although we are not sons and daughters of God in the, in the direct same way that he was, all the same, all the same, the basic picture, I think, is, is the same, that we have this huge potential that God has set out for each of us, and we now have to go and live up to it. And, of course, wherein we fail, we are in a different position to, to the Lord Jesus, I guess, wherein we fail... We have, I don't like to call it a safety net, but, but it is that, uh, of his grace and his forgiveness and the fact that we are in him and counted by God as if we are the Lord Jesus, he who lived up to every potential, he who never failed, he who not only did not sin, but never failed to fulfill all righteousness.